Welcome to Eurodel University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Today we're going to be talking about a very exciting subject, the reverse repo soft floor. What? Trust me, it'll be very interesting. We'll learn about whether or not the Federal Reserve is raising a rate or a couple of rates, where Treasury bills are right now, whether or not they're disagreeing and rejecting the idea of a soft floor, and then all sorts of interesting shadow money features. Jeff, you're the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. You write about shadow money, the global monetary system. And in this blog post, we're going to learn about something called Collateral Day, which we've talked about before. And it's part of the morphology. It's part of, part of the steps that we've gotten used to over these last 15 or so years towards some sort of deflationary monetary event, some sort of disorder. And collateral day is one of the steps along the way. The Fed inadvertently adds to our ironclad collateral case, which does seem to have already included a collateral day or days. Okay, we'll get to all that. Step number one, the Federal Reserve raised a rate. That's what it used to do, Jeff. Not anymore. No, ever since the, the financial crisis in 2008, the way the Federal Reserve actually conducts its monetary policy on a very technical plumbing level is different. You're right. Before then, it was easy. The Fed said, we are going to target a federal funds rate of this, and then we'll conduct open market operations as necessary to make sure that the effective federal funds rate, which is the actual market rate in federal funds market, is consistent with that target over reserve maintenance period, which is a period of a couple of days, a couple of weeks, whatever it was. I think it was two weeks. Anyway, so the Fed just picked a target and the money markets actually stuck around to the target. And the Fed really never had to do much as far as open market operations because markets simply just did what they were supposed to do. As we've talked about before, it wasn't just federal funds market. It was also all other markets. We saw market rates like LIBOR, everything. There was this very repo rates. All these markets seemed to fit together in a whole under a structured hierarchy because they were money dealers behind everything, making sure everything worked the way it was. Fast forward to August 9th, 2007, really August 10th, 2007, suddenly that hierarchy breaks apart. The federal funds market goes haywire, LIBOR goes in one direction, federal funds another, repo, T-bills, it's just utter absolute mess. So on the other side of the crisis or closer to the end of the financial crisis, the Fed says, we can't just pick a federal funds target anymore because it's pretty clear it doesn't work that way. Now, that's a profound statement that nobody ever at the Fed ever took much pay really a whole lot of attention to, at least not in the public eye. And so they decided, we'll take our central bank activities and make them more like Europe or other central banks around the world, where we'll try to make a corridor of rates so that the federal funds rate, which obviously doesn't stick to where we want it to anymore, moves around on its own. So if we put together sort of a corridor, we'll just try to, to constrain the federal funds market into this small little place. And that'll be a good enough, close enough substitute to the way it used to be in a federal funds target. And to, so what the Federal Reserve does ever since December of 2008 says, not a federal, not a specific target, but a range. It sets a range that it says is allowable for the federal, the effective federal funds rate to settle within every day that won't trigger the Fed doing some kind of open market operation to make sure that the federal funds rate is where it's supposed to be. And to help enforce this corridor or range, the Fed has instituted for first IOER as well as the reverse repo, which are supposed to help guide the federal funds market into this range and keep it there. The 
interest on excess reserves, IOER. That's what we're going to talk about first, just briefly, because we're going to focus on RRP. They raised that from 15 basis points to 40 basis points, that 25 basis point increase. Jeff, and that is now known as the ceiling. But was it a ceiling initially or was it a floor? I'm confused. And you should be confused because even those at the Fed are completely confused and have been confused throughout the entire IROER regime. We could get lost in IOER, especially in 2008, but very briefly, yes. IOER was supposed to be a floor and it was supposed to be a somewhat of a hard floor because they thought nobody would lend below this rate because that's the rate the Fed would pay you. And so why would you receive a, an overnight a loan arrangement that uh, returns or pays you less than what you could get at IOER at the Fed? Well, as it turned out, Everybody did. In the 2008 crisis, the federal fund's effective rate was substantially below not just the target, but also IOER. And so they, they screwed around with IOER. They raised it, lowered it, did all sorts of things. Well, they didn't roll lower, but they raised it and then they lowered it with the federal fund's target. At the time, didn't matter. The federal fund's rate seemed to not pay any attention whatsoever to IOER, IOER whether it was a floor or not. And so after the 2008 crisis, they kind of left IOER as sort of a soft ceiling, which we've talked about before. I've written about before, especially in 2018, 2019, which is really sort of this difference between what depository institutions get and what wholesale institutions that are using the investment bank model. We don't need to get into the details here, but suffice to say, it's a lot more complicated than just setting a floor as a single rate or guiding federal funds into a corridor. There's a whole lot of mess to the shadow money stuff. And so it kind of makes a lot of sense why IOER didn't perform as a floor because it's just one little little part and really not an important part of this wider global hole to the marketplace. It's not drawing our attention right now. In 2018, 2019, we were talking about it. Well, you were writing about it. I was reading about it. That's not where our attention is focused on. Now, our focus no. is going to be on the reverse repo program whereby the Federal Reserve does the reverse of a classic of the standard repo program where I have a security, I give it to you, you give me cash. It's that same process, but now we're doing it from the other point of view. So I have cash and I'm going to get a security. That's what the Fed is doing. So they're sending securities out into the, into the marketplace and they're doing it at a specific rate. It was five basis points, but it was raised to 30 basis points. And Jeff, this is wonderful news for shadow money sleuths, because now we have 30 basis points spread off of zero, whereby we can observe if any other money, money, money market rates or money investment securities are below that floor. And what that tells us about the, the Federal Reserve and what sort of control they have on the system. Yes, the reverse repo, as you described, Emil, it's again, from the perspective of the reverse simply means from the perspective of the Federal Reserve, they're borrowing cash on a secured basis, which means they're issuing rights to securities as collateral for the Fed borrowing cash from the marketplace. Mm. Now, the reason the Fed does this and the way it fits into the design of this corridor system is theoretically, it's supposed to put a floor underneath money market rates because Essentially, why would you lend to anybody else at a lower rate than you could lend on a securitized basis to the Federal Reserve, which is zero risk all the way around? So if you're going to lend, if you got cash, spare cash to lend, and the Fed is paying 30 basis points, 
Why would you ever do anything else less than 30 basis points? So theoretically, this RRP sets a very hard floor to where the system should never go below. But as we've been talking about ever since the RRP, or I've been writing about ever since the RRP was first tested way, way back in 2013 and 2014, it kind of doesn't work that way. There's actually been many instances where especially treasury bill rates go below and sometimes substantially below the RRP because as we just talked about in a prior episode, there are reasons that have nothing to do with investment returns, why the market would demand some other forms of security that have nothing to do with the Fed or bank reserves or cash at all. And we're talking about treasury bills as the most pristine form of the most pristine form of collateral, the highest price securities that are used in repo, not just repo, but also derivative transactions. Okay, We can't forget that either. It's not just repo markets, cash for collateral. There's also collateral for collateral, as well as collateralized derivative arrangements all over the world, massive marketplaces that depend upon the fluid and flexible flow of collateral through it. So if we're looking at from a purely investment consideration where treasury bills are yielding way less than the reverse repo, we know that tells us something about not investment, but more this other value, the premium in the marketplace for these collateral repo securities. We're going to talk about a date, June 17th of last year, Jeff. What happened on June 17th, 2021? And then we'll talk some more about some of the examples. June 17th, the Fed was still at the zero lower bound. So the federal funds rate was still between zero and 25 basis points. RRP was set at zero because it was designed to keep everything below zero. And IOER, I believe at that point was 10 or something like that. Or yes, I think it was 10. Anyway, because that the entire marketplace was up against the zero lower bound, that meant that treasury bill rates weren't likely to ever go below RRP because they wouldn't go negative unless there was an extreme case as there has been actually at several points along the way. So it was difficult for us to tell whether or not there was you know, extra additional demand for collateral because the treasury bill rate wasn't likely to go below RRP because that would mean a negative bill rate. But because of this too much money situation where bank reserves were plentiful, the Federal Reserve started worrying about repo rates and the, even the federal funds effective rate coming down in the early part of last year. They raised IOER or they raised IOER, yeah, but they raised the RRP on June 17th by five basis points to try to push all those other money market rates up closer to the middle part of their range or their corridor. But that had the effect of raising RRP above the zero lower bound, which meant that treasury bills didn't have to go negative to show that there was an extra premium or demand for them. And so ever since, I mean, right on the first day, June 17th, and ever since then, we have seen treasury bill yields fall below RRP and remain there for a certain length of time. So inadvertently, the Fed trying to control or influence money markets into its corridor actually showed us or actually gave us the ability to see in real time, in visible sunlight of you know, market transactions, that there was actually a high level, a higher level of demand for treasury bills than really should have been for investment considerations alone. Now we're going to talk about what's happening recently and how it's very clear that there is a discrepancy. There's no soft floor here. But before we get to that, Jeff, I guess the the Federal Reserve could say, well, you know, it's a basis point. We've got a graph up and it. You can see it just dips a little bit below the RRP rate. So maybe you could dismiss it. If you squint, you can't see it quite clearly. 
now that we're where we are in present day, it's unmistakable. You can't miss it. Okay, Jeff, one minute here. So we're saying securities are very important, but aren't market participants receiving securities? Is it that they would rather take the cash they've got and buy and own a treasury bill, a four-week bill, versus lend that cash and have in collateral a treasury bill that they would then have to return the next day. Is that what's happening? Yeah, that's part of it too, is that, you know, there's obviously additional benefit, financial benefit that's not embedded in the return characteristics for having, for owning, having specific title over those securities, which gives us a little bit of a hint that this is probably dealers who lend and borrow and do all sorts of things with securities anyway. So there is added benefit added financial benefit that somebody is willing to pay extra for above and beyond investment. You know, what is the return? What is the interest rate? There's something going on there that says, I want to own the specific security and I am willing to pay a lot for it. Yeah, you're right. Before, uh, you know, during last year when it was just a basis point or two, you could argue that eh, this isn't really much to worry about. But as you just said, it seems like something has changed because as uh, RRP has changed, as well as, you know, treasury bill markets have been, uh, treasury bill yields have been rising in anticipation of the federal funds range rising with rate hikes. We started to see a little bit more heavy indications or more resolute indications that this collateral-based premium that the market is willing to pay, we get to see that more visibly. And now that we're here present day, now we're at this new level, Jeff, the four-week bill, where is it recently? And the eight-week bill as well is crazy because we're comparing it to an overnight rate versus locking up for four weeks or eight weeks. It's way, way below the floor. Yeah, so the rate hike last week, the Federal Reserve said, first of all, the federal funds range, the lower bound is now 25, the upper bound is now 50, which means the Fed would like the effective federal funds rate to go somewhere in that range. Ideally in the middle, doesn't really matter. It's usually closer to the floor than the upper bound. And so it's, it's, again, it's using IOER and RRP to help guide the federal funds market into its range, which meant that it raised the RRP rate from five to 30. So now the RRP rate is 30, and that was effective as of last Thursday. And the first day the RRP was 30, the four-week treasury bill priced at 20. So where it was maybe a basis point to three in the most extreme cases up last year up until recently, the first day they raised the IRP rate, we see the four-week treasury bill at 20, and I believe the eight-week treasury bill was at uh, 28 or something. Mm-hmm. So both of the, top, the front two, two tenors of the treasury bill market were yielding considerably less than the IRP, and over the week since then, it's now uh, Thursday, March 24th, the treasury bill rate, the four-week treasury bill in particular, has gone even lower than that. Yesterday, it was down to around 12 basis points during the day, especially early morning, when we have these scrambles for collateral that we've talked about many times beforehand. So the demand for treasury bills, particularly four and, e- four and eight week treasury bills is sky high. So that now that the IRP at 30 gives us all this room to, to actually see where the four week treasury bill at 2015, where it was close at the close yesterday, it's an absolutely clear picture of something is creating demand for treasury bills that has nothing to do with the interest rate return on the instrument. Yes. On the 23rd, when you wrote the article, the dead horse bill rides in, rides in on uh, the four week bill 
was 15 basis points below RRP, and the eight-week bill was three basis points below the RRP. You just mentioned, so we're seeing collateral demand. And you said, especially in the morning, what does that do? That matches what we're looking for on a collateral day, except you're saying maybe we're witnessing collateral days. Now, Jeff, tell us about what happened in October 2014, October 15th, 2014, and May 29th, 2018, where market participants must, must have collateral. They buy and mass. Are we seeing something similar to the same level or perhaps lesser level recently? Yeah, well, let's let's back up a minute here and talk about the big picture, the big picture where the global system transverses between reflation and the next downward deflationary cycle. It's usually not a short run process. It's not like the system just somebody flips a switch and it goes from one to the other. It usually takes some time where you start out where you see these minor little things that have happened. They're interesting. There may be anomalies. You take note of them and see if they if they proliferate, they see if they expand. And over time, if they continue to escalate, then what you're seeing is this rolling over transition between a refl- generally reflationary monetary period where dealers are expanding their balance sheets modestly. So the global dollar shortage isn't as acute. It's it's less of a shortage. It never gets to quite to sufficient monetary levels, but still it's generally positive and uplifting. And then it starts to roll over because like you said, we saw Fedwire last year. We saw the yield curve start to flatten out. Saw some really just generalized, non-specific, out of the way warning signs, things starting to change in the opposite direction, but then they escalate. And so you see, you know, the treasury bill yield, uh, the four-week treasury bill yield might be one basis point below RRP, then suddenly it's a couple basis points below RRP. At the same time, we see something happen in the swaps market. At the same time, we see repo fails. And all these things start to build and build and build and build until we get to a point where it's not just little things in a couple places. It's bigger things that you can't help but notice in a lot of places. And when you get to that point, you start to see, you know, again, not just little things, but then things start to snap and break and really go wrong. And one of those things or one of those indications is something we call a collateral day, where in the collateral system, something happens, something triggers it where it's where the system itself has become so fragile that it doesn't take a whole lot to, to send dealers running and risk takers scurrying and everything where everybody just gets herded into the best of the best collateral because something has gone, it's increasingly going in the wrong direction and it gets to essentially, I don't want to say it's a breaking point, but it's one breaking point among several. It's a key indicator that tells us that we're getting too far along in this rolling over period, maybe getting past the point of no return where the downside is almost inevitable once we see one of these collateral days. And market participants aren't going to miss it, Jeff, right? They're in the midst of it. They're seeing it. They're hearing it, bond traders. So they're not going to miss it. And they're going to get the message well before the, the central banks or the financial media get the message that the monetary conditions are unwelcome for balance sheet expansion. Jeff, when we look at this graph, you've got here a collateral case study. You're showing the yields of the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and we see a few gap downs. I'm guessing those are in the morning, Eastern time. And if so, Jeff, is that atypical? Is that unusual? Maybe that happens all the time. Not all of us are trading bonds every day, so we don't know. 
is this unusual? Should it be a contiguous line that we should be observing? Well, there is a contiguous line through the after hours market, but you're right, Emil, that's really when all this collateral stuff, the interesting stuff really takes place. And so in this early morning period that's outside the regular session, we start to see huge demand for safe and liquid interest, including treasury bills. In the worst of the worst cases, you know, as you know, it's gold. There's other indications that we can follow where as yesterday's repo trades begin to unwind and participants in the collateralized markets start to look ahead for the day. You know, what funding do I need to put on the transactions or the trades that I need to do? Do I have the collateral to do it? It's in this early morning window where if things get to extreme levels of, you know, collateral is just so hard to come by. That's where you see these, you know, closing gap to or close, end of day close to the early the opening of the next day. You see this tremendous gap where it's in this early morning window so much demand for collateral, it's this massive, massive difference. And you're right, it's not supposed to be that way. Most trading days, there's def- there's obviously a difference between the closing price and the opening session, part of the session, but it's usually not these massive, huge differences that we have seen on these, some of these collateral days that you've already pointed out. You know, October 15th, 2014 was one, May 29th, 2018, I believe March 16th of 2011, so almost every time we go through these euro dollar cycles, we have this one. It's not just a single day either. It's usually a series of a couple of days where something just snaps and we get to this this indication which tells us, yeah, this before then it was something to be worried about. Now it's something where we think it's become a huge issue. What do you think about the scale of the one that we just observed uh, late February and early March compared to what we saw in October? 2014 and May of 2018. The scale is not as severe. Is that true? In the ones, I mean, October 20 or October 15, 2014 takes the cake because what happened on that day was just absolutely tremendous. And of course, the government blamed that on computer trading when, in fact, you know, the prior day, October 14th, you could already see it coming. Because, like I said, this, these collateral days, there's one day where they, where it just kind of becomes obvious, but it's really a string of days put together where it's cascading effect. And so October 15th to 2014, particularly in the early morning of the regular session, was just an utter mess because it was a tidal wave of collateral calls and margin calls based on collateral that were coming in that the system just could not handle on October 15th. So the scale of that one was about, I think, 40 some basis points on the 10-year treasury yield from the top to the bottom, which was Absolutely immense. May 29th, 2018. Again, it wasn't just May 29th. It was also the Friday before that. And remember, May 28th was Memorial Day. So there's a holiday gap in in between those two. But by and large, you know, top to bottom, most of it was on May 29th. But from the start to where it ended on May 29th, it was about 30 some basis points on the 10 year yield, too. So the 10 year yield dropped from above three to down, you know, somewhere in the 260s. It was an enormous two day drop in yields that was. If you were paying attention to the market, you thought something weird happened here because rates are supposed to be rising. Rates are supposed to be going up because Jay Powell, rate hikes, inflation, all these other things. And just out of the clear blue, at least it seems like it for, for the public, out of the clear blue, everybody's piling into safe and liquid, safe and liquid, safe and liquid all across the world. Now, what happened earlier this month, I think, kind of got lost because it was buried underneath Russia, Ukraine, World War III, nuclear weapons. But start to finish, if you go back to late February to around March 1st, and then again, March 4th, the collateral days together, especially February 28th and March 1st, 
were about, I think they were exactly the same as May 24th and May 29th of 2018. So in one sense, it was basically the same scale as it had been in 2018. And we know how 2018 played out from there on. So if this was indeed a collateral day or days, and I think that it was, it's an important indication that the collateral shortage or collateral scarcity before that point may be shifted higher, shifted into a higher gear. Now we have, that's why we have the four-week bill that's now today, you know, so far below RRP because the collateral system went from scarcity to maybe now it's outright shortage. In the 2018 example, it took about four to five months before this uh, scarcity manifested itself in the real economy. So we'll see if that takes place this time as well. Jeff, that's it for me on this particular article. Are there any overarching themes that we didn't cover? Any points that you wanted to raise before we end the episode? No, again, just that this is not, you know, we go through these things sort of like they're vignettes, but they're really part of a much wider story. And so it's in one sense, it's a progression through time where you see these escalating things happen and then they get into, you know, bigger and bigger, bigger, bigger events something like a collateral day that tells you that time is really running out. The amount of space or margin that we have left to avoid another downside is diminishing because this fragile system is becoming increasingly fragile, which means deflationary money potential rises because in a fragile system, it doesn't take a whole lot for you know something to happen, which spirals out of control. And soon enough, then you have something like December 2018 and early 2019, or Throughout 2015, any number of examples like August of 2015, where CNY just crashes. And from there, just the global economy falls into a, you know, a deflationary mess. So it's, it's not just one thing or another, but it's the progression of all of these things culminating into more clear, more stark warnings about fragility, especially where it comes to collateral. Time is running out would be a great name for the illustration over my left shoulder here by David Parkins. You can actually see some of the hourglasses there. And why not? Why don't we just put it up on the screen for the audience too? Jeff, good show. I'll talk to you in the next episode. All right, take care, Emil. 